Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. Look, I'll be H with you. H is as short for honesty, it's my new slang, spread it. This year I've sucked at knocking out this podcast at the rate and quality we both deserve. It's been a tricky time, global apocalypse, deadlines, general being a meat-based life form existing in a physical and temporally bound universe. But look, I'm sure you've had times when you've not been as productive as you'd like. Does hating yourself help? No. Have you ever self-loathed your way into a novel? No. So let us not dwell on my failings, many and grave though they may be. Let us practice kindness and self-compassion and mutual compassion. Let's instead look at the first page of a listener's story. If you'd like to submit your work for a future episode, I'll tell you how at the end of the show. But for now, let's get straight into it. How about that? That's a novel thing. Whoa, Tim is actually jumping straight into the show and not beating about the bush. So here's The Shore of Beginnings by R. Matthew. Temple bells no longer rang in Acratoria and Ryanair did not much care. Palms braced on the biting stone balcony, she leaned over the parapet. Buildings below bowed, and the lumbering doors to the deserted shrine dangled limp from their hinges. Like the priestesses themselves, they were dragged out in the grip of the city guards. Reiner had watched them from this same spot. Pathetic pale, blinking in direct sunlight and the glorious might of Acratoria's king. Then they doused the sacrificial pyre. Defeating it took the work of half the palace unit, the great flame determined not to die. There was a moment, a twinge, compassion for the order. Their temple was a warm, welcoming figure, recognisable and solid. It orientated her during those first few moon cycles, whenever she feared being lost in the tangle of the city. Now she looked upon the empty, extinguished husk, her hollow heart resigned to inaction. The building had been useless and performative anyway. Goddess Omorphia's real sacrificial bonfire still burned after many eras at the heart of Reistan. Raina saw them tending it each night in her dreams, in a city she had never visited. The peasants needed no time keeping temple bells either. They scurried along the city byways below, blurred fleas. Reiner tried to envisage a fall from this height, rushing wind snatching silent screams and gurgling vomit from her throat, the bone-shattering thwack on the cobbles right at their feet. Would they stop and notice? A yawn stretched her cheeks. Okay, so that's the extract, and here are my suggestions. Temple bells no longer ran in Acratoria, and Reiner did not much care. So, my feelings about this opening line are decidedly mixed, and here's for why. Temple bells no longer rang in Acratoria. So we have a specific, clearly invented place name, which immediately suggests that this is SFF of some variety. The temple bells part implies fantasy over science fiction. Now, it's not necessarily best practice for readers to immediately want to sort a story into a particular genre bucket, and, and it's not your job as an author to pander to that tendency, but it's 
still an expectation. It exists. It's something that goes on in the world. It's still something that the readers will bring to your story, an interpretive lens that we all take to books we want to read. And as an author, it's worth being aware of that. You can't pretend it's not there and you might as well play with it you know you can muck about if you like you can set up tripwires and sucker punch your readers but, but, but what you can't do is pretend it's not a thing so that first part of the sentence does a good job I think of of meeting those expectations it alerts us to what prescription of genre spectacles we ought to put on when reading this story if we want to see most clearly and fruitfully because as I've said before genre isn't really a quality inherent in the text so much as a way of reading a set of assumptions we bring to the story and use to make sense of it. Also this clause introduces a bit of mystery. Temple bells no longer rang. Why? What's happened? Maybe there's been some kind of religious purge. Now, reading on, obviously, we know that's the case. But I think even at this point, we might start having that speculation. Or maybe it's an ancient ruined city. Maybe there's been, you know, the evil theocratic ruling caste have been ousted. Maybe the bells attract angels and angels aren't very pleasant creatures. So they've stopped ringing them. Like I don't know at this stage, but it, like it's a good specific kind of implied promise right the bells no longer ring and whatever the reason if we read on we'll find out some context and again by implication the fact that they no longer ring will be in some way important to the story and it's themed so you're front loading with specificity and with something that's going to somehow resonate that will chime if you like ah ha 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 with the themes and important conflicts of the story that's great so why then are Matthew, for the benefit of those listening, that's R, the initial Matthew, not R as in the collective possessive pronoun. Uh, why then might I be somewhat ambivalent overall on this opening sentence? Well, it's down to what comes next. And Reiner did not much care. So to start off, there's just a teensy-weensy grammatical ambiguity you know you introduce two proper nouns in quick succession and because we have no grounding in the naming conventions of your world we're not able to easily parse on a first pass which of those is a place name and which is a person so on a first pass when we go through this for many readers this sentence will logically read as temple bells no longer rang in Akratoria and Reiner that's just the nature of English syntax and absorbing information serially rather than in one parasynchronous data blast. So sure, like we then read on, ah, Reiner is a person. Like from context, any reader will be able to tell that. But it's a hiccup nonetheless, because the first and most obvious interpretation is not actually the one you want us to read. And we can only find out that we're supposed to read it differently by finishing the sentence and then going back. You know, we get a little record scratch there, a, a, a little sort of moment of, oh, what's going on? Well, this is the first sentence of your story. And already we've, or at least a non-trivial percentage of readers are going to feel this little tickle in their throats. You know, I've had to stop and retrace my steps and figure out what you mean it's it's not game ending you know you wouldn't 
shame an author on Twitter because they'd written a sentence like this, going, oh, you don't deserve to be a professional. You would look... I mean, I think any... <laughs> to be fair, any author that you did that for, you'd look mean-spirited and, and a bit of an ass. But, like, it, this isn't so dreadful and bad that it, it, it's something that would scream out at someone. But it's just not how you want to start a narrative. You know, like, if you can avoid this, why not avoid it, right? You know, mystery, fine. Semantic ambiguity, nicht so gut, as they say in Germany. And Reiner did not much care. So here's the other problem. Oh, great. Just to be clear, you know, you've started off with this intriguing world-building tidbit. You toss that out. You front-loaded the entire story with it. You know, that you could start anywhere in this story and you start with telling us that the bells no longer ring in Akratoria. And then immediately, just to be clear... This is of no consequence to the protagonist that we're incidentally going to be following. It's like opening with the Dark Lord's armies were massing in the east, wetting their ebon blades and constructing their engines of infernal destruction. But this mattered little to Gregory, who lived on a distant continent protected by an impassable mountain range and defended by a huge, well-trained military. He was having a lovely egg sandwich. I mean, even my joke example is a bit more interesting because it implies heavy irony, like Gregory's nation might be perhaps a, a little bit too sure of themselves, a bit too convinced it could never happen here. So we're thinking they're all sitting there going, well, you know, the equivalent of, Hitler, you mark my words, Herr Hitler will never invade the Sudetenland. And, 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 and clearly, because we trust authors a little bit, because we think they wouldn't tell us stuff just to be pointless about it, we think that these two things are going to clash at some stage, um, that you wouldn't have told it us just to waste our time. So I guess even in that example, there's a suggestion of cl dark clouds massing on the horizon. But in in your version, it, it's not even like that, right? It's Reiner is just, I don't know whether it's Reiner or this is, uh, for those of you listening, it's, uh, I presume... You're all listening and, and not reading the text over my shoulder, but Reiner is spelled R-Y-N-E-H. So it could be Reiner or Reiner or Rene or not. It wouldn't be Re, it would be Rena or any. Anyway, I'm just saying Reiner because that's just, I've got to go with one. And it makes me think of Rob Reiner, the director. I don't know why. I don't think it's a deliberate allusion to Rob Reiner. Presumably not. It'd be very clever if it is. Um, but but Reiner is just indifferent here, right? Like 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 this. It, this sentence is more like the crypt wall was covered in a mass of ancient runes, which Dave didn't give a shit about. And look at that phrasing you've used there. Reiner did not much care. So it's not even committing to the fact that Reiner doesn't care. <laughs> like she's not even her, her feelings about it are not even so negatively valenced that she absolutely doesn't care she's indifferent even about her indifference she doesn't much care like you're qualifying that in in, in case the, the the reader somehow steps in and goes well she must care a bit surely you can't say she doesn't care at all it's like so loyally and fiddly and like what? 
what what what's going on why 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 are we immediately wiping away any commitment to the opening clause of the sentence as if to say i mean it's like you're trying to be really cool it's like it's it's like a teenager right going uh yeah i mean it's all right i can take it or leave it don't you know don't I'm not a nerd or anything. I mean, it was all right, I guess. You know, come on. Let, let, be excited about your own fucking story for a second. Like, like, like it, you, it's like the story sets up this intriguing lore. And then, oh, just to be clear, this person that you're following, who you're seeing the scene through their eyes, they think that this is dry as desiccated skeleton balls, you tedious rube. So for a start, look, I, I think these two clauses do not need to be connected by and and don't glue different clauses different statements together without a good reason for doing that like it doesn't serve any purpose aside from confusing the reader and making it run on but more importantly don't give us information that is of no interest to your protagonist whatsoever or at least don't step in to inform us that the protagonist doesn't care about it does it matter that she doesn't care like the implication when you're doing anything that is in kind of close third person that is in third person limited that might be dipping into stream of consciousness is that it is at least tangentially relevant to your protagonist as soon as it's not you can't get round that by saying but this was of little consequence to your faithful hero it's just like well then don't say it you don't put us in their head it's like me walking down the road and continually speculating about the history of bindweed i mean i'm not getting at anyone who loves bindweed like i'm sure it's like super interesting i think botany is cool not in the conventional sense but i you know i anyway look i'm just trying to not upset uh, botanists, horticulturists, anyone who loves bindweed. It's not an attack on you. I was just trying to think of a specific reference because, as we know, crunchy specificity not only evokes more senses in the uh, reader, but it also works well for humour. Anyway, I'm going to, like, reverse out of that. Like, look, it might be semi-relevant if, for example, the clamour of the bells, tintabulation, I love that word, um, would, you know, cover the sound of her footprint, footsteps. You know, if she was sneaking on the roof in a kind of Assassin's Creed style parkour job, right? She's like, and, and there's no longer ding-donging bells that would have covered up her movements and distracted from what she was doing. Or, you know, if the lack of bells now lets you hear if someone's coming, if that's a risk that someone might be sneaking up on you and their absence allows her to hear the sounds of the city more because the other thing is you're describing an absence oh you know bells imagine some bells there there, there aren't any there's no no sound of bells well what is there then because what you've done is made us imagine a thing and then saying right put a cross through that that isn't there so immediately this like layer of abstraction where we're not in the narrative present we're it you you know what else isn't there there's no you, you know, there, there, there aren't any prophylactics full of bong water being flung through the village square. There's no 
farting leprechauns. Like, th- those are all things that are absent from this scene as well. But you're not telling us about that because we'd be here until the end of time. So you've got to have a really, really good reason of describing the absence of something. And the absence of something is normally, especially when there's the absence of sound, it normally manifests in what that absence allows to be heard. You know, when people say the cliche is, I, you know, I heard you could hear a pin drop. And, and that would be good. I mean, it's, it's a metaphor, but it's better in a scene to describe what, unless someone is actually a clumsy haberdasher and literally drops a pin then you know hearing their breathing hearing the rumble of blood in their ears hearing you know the smacking of their lips or something like that the kind of creak of their knees the creak of a chair all of these things tell us that the area that they're in is unnaturally quiet but if you haven't told us anything about it except that there used to be temple bells often, not now, then we're not really put into the place. It's fine to mention that, but you need to actually give us what there is. Otherwise, it's just like saying I'm not in it. There used to be an airport here, but there was no longer the sound of planes. Well, I I know to cross airport off my list now of places to use as an analogy for where this location is but that's about it right like it doesn't actually give us that someone is in a cornfield or a crater or whatever okay so so, so, you know step in and tell us what Reiner can hear you know maybe temple bells no longer rang in Akratoria just the dot 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 i don't know strangely musical flatulence of the ravenous ass piper beasts that roamed its deserted streets of course you can you know you can you could play a similar construction for laughs i don't think that's what you're interested in doing here and it's not right for this story probably but you know just so we note this as as a kind of teachable moment you can do this kind of thing for wry humor of course like 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 uh E.g. the giant's fist crashed through the roof, shattering rafters as huge filthy fingers groped about for a victim to squeeze. But Rita had bigger problems. So so that's immediately setting up a problem and then emphasising that that is not of the primary concern of our protagonists say yeah you know we understand in that case a likely high level of irony or sarcasm or maybe somehow Rita really does have bigger problems in which case wow that's like quite an exciting start you know maybe she's she's in deep 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 trouble you know you have to be some crazy things going on for a a giant smashing through a roof trying to grab her to not be the biggest of her problems maybe she's just kind of like hyper competent and composed such that a giant smashing in a roof is not enough to make her lose her cool maybe she's just poor at threat assessment all of those things could be interesting takes and that could be an interesting start to a scene what i'm saying is in creative writing there are no rules just norms so i'm not saying that you can't have an opening where you introduce a piece of law and then emphasize the fact that the protagonist doesn't care very much about it but i think you normally need to know why you're doing something and the effect it's likely to have actually that even that's not 
a rule, right? Like writers do stuff all the time, including me, without knowing, uh, you know, why we're doing it. We go by gut. We choose a word or phrase because it feels right. It kind of sounds good. It kind of rolls off our tongue. Maybe we're going by habit. Maybe we kind of like abstracted a bunch of rules over time from reading and writing. But I'd argue most of the time, you know, our intuition, it just reflects a set of internalised principles and norms and, uh, you know, good writing habits that we've just picked up from immersing ourselves in stories, you know, creating them and consuming them um, over years. So I think a lot of the time we can apply all of these kind of rules of thumb, if I'm going to use rules, but they're not kind of rules, even when we don't un totally understand why we're applying them. A bit like how you can, if you can drive, you can probably drive competently without consciously thinking through all the physics and mechanical processes of how your car's working and the psychology of other drivers. We kind of like unconsciously without even really thinking about it model the likely moves of other drivers and how we're going to drive a car same thing with writing a lot of it you get to internalize and i i, I just think this is not a great opening line because it, it kind of it, it just kind of like doubles back on itself and negates itself and it ends up just kind of sharting its own pants you know palms braced on the biting stone balcony she leaned over the parapet palms braced I, I i i know like like the word braced means if you brace something you 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 make it sturdy i guess is one of the meanings of brace but I, i'm not sure what work the verb braced is doing here like she's steadying herself sure but, but really it's more like her arms are braced that's normally how i think of it they're the bits that are doing the steadying i i, I think probably like, I'm just not sure what the difference between someone's palms being on a balcony and braced on a balcony are. Like, I don't know that you really brace your palms. They're just flat on a balcony, right? Like, there's not, like, a, unless I've been missing all these years some amazing move that makes my palms more sturdily kind of... If they're flush on the balcony, that then they are. Like, maybe if you brace your arms, then you probably move them either. I don't know. I just don't know what that looks like. And it's just like her palms are on the biting stone balcony, aren't they? Like, 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 they're, I don't think that the fact that they're braced adds any information. It's just a word that kind of brings attention to itself without adding any information. Biting stone. Like, what do you mean? Palms braced on the biting stone balcony. How do you mean biting? Like, is it bitingly cold? Is it ridged in a spiky way? Is it? Biting in the sense that it plagiarizes hip hop bars from other artists. Like, biting stone isn't a thing. I suspect you mean like the stone is bitingly cold, right? It's like, it, it, in which case, maybe just say cold. It's like, I get, like, I, I, I get what you're going for, but like, yeah, biting stone, that's just not a phrase that anyone uses and it, it just. It just hits the ear a bit oddly. So if her palms are braced on the balcony, then presumably that means she's on all fours, right? Like, I don't really get this. Why has she gone down? So how is she leaning over the parapet? Like, I don't... Like, is there no edge to this? Like, I don't actually even really understand where she is, but is, is there no safety rail or barrier around the edge or on this balcony? No no balustrade or, or wall? Or has she just got, like, monstrously long arms that allows her to kind of be on all fours and yet still 
see over a three foot high wall. I, I, I don't know what's going on here, right? Like, I, I think you need some clarity here. Now, I know that this kind of thing is a flipping nightmare when you're writing. Like, balconies, temples and castles are, are like notoriously an arsehole to describe because there are a bunch of architectural words, fiddly, tricky ones for bits. We can all imagine, like if you drew it or you showed it in a movie, everyone will be able to see what it is. But on paper, like when you're talking about balusters and crenellations and your buttresses and things like that, you know, all of those words are like technically correct. They fulfill my criteria for crunchy specificity, but they leave a lot of readers behind. A lot of the time readers can't actually describe what you're saying can't actually understand what you're describing. So, like, maybe you could start with by saying she lay down and peered over the parapet or something similar. Although I don't really understand how that works. I, I, I just I'm just super confused. Like, I, I do like that you've tr at least tried to engage the reader's five senses by evoking that sensation of cold stonework. Um, like you're putting us in her body, in her sensations, in the moment. That's cool. I think that's a very strong ethereal instinct that you're responding to there it also brings in this detail that she's on a stone balcony through a physical thing right so you've actually crammed a couple of bits of exposition into one the fact i think it's important that it's stone uh because that suggests a bunch of stuff about again it's feeding into what kind of technology level this fantasy world's in like i think all of that's super cool um i just think the current phrasing doesn't quite work buildings below bowed and the lumbering doors to the deserted shrine dangled limp from their hinges no this is really bad like the intent is good so kudos for that and you of course are more than good you are a wonderful valuable and valued human being you know we're just critiquing the extract here not the person behind it at all you are unimpeachably wonderful and i genuinely mean that i there's no sarcasm intended whatsoever but this is just like a poor sentence all round it's complete fart buildings below bowed bowed like i was assuming bowed rather than bowed but i've got no way to tell because they're spelt the same and also because you know they make about as much sense as each other which is to say very little bowed is the active verb in this sentence buildings below bowed so it gives it a sense of her gazing down and the houses all doing like little curtsies in response like this is one of those old psychedelic black and white cartoons i say houses i don't know because you've only mentioned buildings here the absolutely vaguest category you could have gone for beneath objects like it's just weird like so so, so the buildings aren't doing anything presumably you're just trying to, to describe them so don't give them the main verb of the sentence the buildings below bowed like they didn't they look a bit like they're kind of bowing is is what i got from this and and of course you don't always have to qualify every image away by saying they look kind of like uh, it's always stronger to leave out kind of it's always stronger 90 percent of the time the right decision is to not use a simile but to use a, a metaphor but this is just too active, too weird, too fanciful. L like, when you give them the main verb of the sentence, it, it makes them the subjects of the sentence. Buildings below... Like, it, it, it makes them the agent in the sentence. And they're not... They don't have any agency. And that's not... you. 
that's not a useful thing for them to be doing. It, 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 it's just confusing. Also, buildings below bowed. Yes, it's, it, it's alliterative. Well done. That doesn't make it good. This isn't the presenter's bit to camera during a funny home video compilation program. Next up, we've got mischievous mutts, balmy budgies and self-immolating social workers. Don't go away. And the lumbering doors to the deserted shrine. No, doors do not lumber. They are made out of lumber. The only thing lumbering is this prose. Maybe you're sort of gesturing towards cumbersome here. Like technically lumber means to move ponderously and heavily as if under a tremendous load. Something is lumbered with something. It suggests a burden. An elephant might come lumbering down the road, carrying a great quantity of goods upon its back. I have flat feet and so I tend to um, move in a lumbering manner. Some definitions also include a kind of uh, an adjacent idea of lumbering meaning to rumble, right? Something comes lumbering along. It, it suggests, I think, in some understandings of the word, some kind of noise. But the thing is, the buildings aren't bowing and the doors aren't lumbering at the moment right like they're not doing anything because you say right after they're quote hanging limp from their hinges end quote so i have a bunch of objections to this right i don't think massive oak or metal plated doors or whatever they are can hang limp they're, they're not sheets of tissue paper or uh, sort of uh, little uh, uh, sapling switches that have been snapped and hanging limp from the tree. They're not the broken wing of a tiny pigeon. They're, 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 they're vast kind of like temple doors, right? Secondly, to say that they're lumbering implies actual movement in the scene she's watching, not the potential for lumbering at some past or future point you know you wouldn't say she gazed down at the growling lion dead for many weeks now a, a, a lion isn't a growling lion if it's not currently growling a door isn't a lumbering door just because at some point someone might have theoretically described the kind of motion it makes as lumbering it 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 just doesn't work to use present continuous adjectives like that. It, 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 immediately, I am in chronological hell here, being pulled in all directions by what was and what could be. Like, I feel like Ebenezer Scrooge in some kind of horrible three ghosts scheduling nightmare. Like, you know, and, and unless, of course, that the lion, the growling lion that had been dead for many weeks now in the aforementioned example, you know, was an actual zombie lion, which would be very cool indeed. Uh, I'm not even sure that genuinely huge temple gates use what could reasonably be described as hinges so much as greased iron pintles socketed into gudgeons. See, here again, we are with stupid technical terms that sound like I'm making them up. But basically, we're talking about the, like these big metal sockets, right? You know, from what I'm imagining from the description you've given, you have gates on big metal sockets, almost like torch sconces, sticking out from the wall where they've kind of like been bolted into place. And then the big pin, the pintle that's attached to the gate itself, kind of slots down into it from the top. And it's pure weight keeps it in place oh i'm tim i've researched the door designs of antiquity 
But certainly if, you know, from your character's perspective, you know, these doors are just described as, as these things on the edge of the doors are just described as hinges. I don't expect uh, Reiner to care about any of that. Heavy gates aren't going to be hanging limply from any kind of hinge that could have supported their weight. Like, like even a moderately big door is going to have to have either been smashed in, you know, like bashed with iron shod battering rams or hacked up with axes to not just stay in place right like either the people who went in by force had to break in or the gates were opened for them if they had to break in these gates are gonna be effed up you know these aren't flimsy little boutique gates you know it's not a set of it's not a butcher's curtain you know it's not like mosquito strips hanging from here they that's the only kind of thing that could be like a bead curtain might hang limply someone's <laughs> if someone's if someone's hung a towel over a washing line <laughs> to give a sense of privacy maybe that would be reasonably described as hanging limply if there's a doily on top of a shoe rack shoe tree yeah, shoe tree, let's say shoe tree. That could be hanging limply. A, 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 a temple door is not going to be hanging limply by any stretch of the imagination. You know, it's not the customer entrance gate for a miniature railway. And if one of those gudgeons breaks, there we go, gudgeons. Ooh, what a word. Um, It's going to be, you know, it's going to be after the impact of years of weathering and rust and neglect if it wasn't torn off by invaders, at which point the door would simply collapse under its own weight it would fall to the ground right it wouldn't just dangle or hang limply or just stay upright unless i don't know you know like the temple is in the service of some abstruse theological edict that meant its doors are made out of dried lasagna sheets like the priestesses themselves they were dragged out in the grip of the city guard so by this point i'm super confused when did this happen do you mean like the princesses they had been dragged out like we're not watching this happen now right like why would the doors drag like wait, hang on like why would the doors drag doors outside why are they evicting the doors from the temple like is that what they refers to in this sentence like because um, it's not clear the pronoun but like why laboriously relocate a door once you've opened it if you're trying to like break in like i can imagine them coming out and like smashing religious icons and things like that but why why take a door off its hinges especially if it's and, and what how are they still hanging limp from their hinges if they've been quote unquote dragged out by the way you don't need to specify in the grip of as opposed to by if something or someone is you know dragged out i'm going to assume the people doing the dragging are are gripping them and not levitating them via the psionic jewel each one has embedded in their forehead. Reiner had watched them from the same spot. Okay, so as I originally thought, you are talking about the past, which makes me wonder... So, 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 so actually it should have been they had been dragged out, not they were dragged out. So immediately I'm wondering, like, what is Reiner looking at now? You know, why is she gazing down? It, it 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 sounds like this action happened a while ago. Is she, is she just climbed up there just to have a flashback? It's like, oh, 
dude, let me tell you, this amazingly dramatic thing happened right in this very spot. No, I mean, it's over now. Pretty much all wrapped up. You kind of had to be there. But woo, some pretty spicy religious conflict. They removed the doors, carried them outside by hand, yeah, and then left them there, hanging limply, pathetic pale, blinking in direct sunlight, and the glorious might of Akratoria's king. So now the doors were blinking, like, because doors were the subject in the main clause of the previous sentence. Like the priestesses themselves, they were dragged out in the grip of the city guards. Uh, the priestesses only feature in an adverbial subclause describing how the doors were dragged out. So immediately, like, what they refers to has changed. I know that's how pronouns work. They have different reference at different times. That's how they're so handy-dandy. But there's no reason for us on a first pass to understand that you mean not the doors, but the priestesses, because you're shifting again. Super confusing. Of course, reading back through it, we get context. I understand that you're talking about the priestesses now. You know, bluntly, as a reader, that's not my job. You should <laughs> make it clear. Why direct sunlight as opposed to sunlight? Pathetic pale, blinking in direct sunlight. Like, this is a story, not care instructions for wisteria. Listeners won't be able to hear uh, in my reading, although I did my level best to uh, give it a little bit of an, uh, an inflective spin. But um, in that sentence... Glorious might is surrounded by scare quotes. So, uh, blinking in the direct in direct sunlight and the glorious might of Akratoria's king. Um, so that's laying it on a bit thick. Like, okay, I get it. Reiner doesn't actually think the king is mighty or glorious, but editorialising like this feel, feels a bit like you're spoon feeding the reader. Uh, you might as well, you know, add a vomit emoji afterwards. It's just a bit too much. So Reiner calls the priestesses pathetic pale, but also seems dismissive of the king. Like, are we to understand that she's kind of indifferent to both sides? I mean, that's an OK position for her to take. She can kind of be a little bit contemptuous of both. It's just, you know, like in this section, a bit confusing, especially as it's not totally clear when these events are happening and to whom different pronouns refer, because you're actually trying to pack in quite a lot in what has been a, uh, just a, a smattering of sentences there's a character in the narrative present Reiner, you know, she's there in the now of the story she's climbed up onto a thing she's looking down at a ruin and remembering events she witnessed an indeterminate amount of time ago which by implication introduces two distinct factions one of which appears to be ousting the other in her story we have a named city we have a named protagonist we have a king we have priestesses of what we don't yet know we have some conflict between them but it's not clear what that conflict sprung from now obviously like this can seem like a little bit mean-spirited because you can only deliver information in sequence, right? Again, I'm not berating you for lacking the ability to deliver it all in an instant flash of revelation. And in any case, I'm I'm never berating you uh, just for all avoidance of doubt. I'm just critiquing the work. But I do wonder if this scene immediately falls into the classic trap of fantasy and science fiction, which is to open with a protagonist in the present give us a couple of beats of their existing in their environment before immediately wheeling back to do an info dump. It's like, I think as, I think this is true of like all 
fiction writers, but I think particularly science fiction and fantasy novelists have been taught. We were all taught that like a Star Wars title crawl or a fantasy prologue are gauche, right? You know, oh, don't do prologues. Don't explain your world. Start in the middle of action. You know, I, I, in fact, I'm sure I've made very concrete sounding pronouncements to that effect more than once. I'm sure I've said, this is a rule. Don't do this, you big silly. So, you know, as writers, we've got that kind of voice in our head. And so we know I'm not going to start off by going, here's what's happening in my world. So, so we pay lip service to it by opening with our character in a situation, you know, they're doing something. Oh, it's in media res. Look, we've joined them as they're up to something. Something's happening. They're walking around, having a life. But straight away, we then start by having the character reflect on the politics and history of the environment they're in, right? But in this kind of smudgy, half-disguised way, because we kind of know we're not supposed to do it, but we want to include it and we need to put it in. So actually you get the worst of both worlds like it's difficult to follow but it's not interesting and look I do it everyone does it it's so hard to resist my suggestion is it's actually better to bite the bullet and give us an introduction a potted history a little bit of background on the world if you need to do that you know it could be just like a a prologue I don't know who started putting around the word that prologues you're not allowed to do them or that they're bad I, I think prologues can be fucking great I love a brilliant prologue it just it just like anything it just has to be good or interesting you just have to not go in the ancient land of Pelennor a great miasma swept across the land the king looked out upon his kingdom and fearing for the safety of his subjects convened a council of the five wisest dukes to see what could be done but the dragon of the east could you know like i just don't make it so generic that i start losing the will to live if it's like in the dread kingdom of montebank five Dread world worms were playing cricket. I don't know. I, I, I'm not. I'm not a prologue shitting machine. Come on. What I'm saying is, like, if it's cool, if the prologue's cool, I'm up for it. If the prologue's not cool, I'm not up for it. That's it. Like, you just got to make it good, and it's got to do the job that it needs to do, which is set up the world so you can then get into the just. Mm -mm, peanut butter and strawberry jam filling of just cool story happening yeah we're there that's all an opening needs to do just don't pretend you're not doing it don't treat your audience like mugs don't open with what appears to be the beginning of a story and then kind of start dropping in bits of potted history here's the wikipedia page Here's the little footnote about what's going on in the world. Here's a little bit of cultural context. Like, don't do that. Just either give us the story or give us the world. Just don't mess about with Mr. In-Between. You know, I think some of my favourite writing I did in The Honours was a couple of bits where I just, like lost my patience and went flip it you know what i'm just going to say what happened i'm going to tell 
not show, you know, just directly without trying to hint at stuff or, you know, obliquely wink at the reader or seed the narrative with clues. And I, I, I love implicature within fiction. I love leaving stuff unsaid and leaving semantic lacunae. You know, I, I, I think playing with levels of reader epistemology and not ramming stuff down their throat is is the heart of all fiction don't get me wrong i don't want to mount these kind of overcorrections people do where they where they start saying actually it's good to tell not show some exposition is good because the people who start arguing for it the most inevitably use it to justify their worst excesses and i'm just like don't do that like be better. Be good at writing. It's not an excuse. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card for not dramatising. But if you can write like a compelling story in kind of storybook mode, go for it. You know, say what you mean. Get out the way. I think it can be quite liberating for both writer and reader. You know, once upon a time, there was a kingdom, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes you can just give them the salient information they need to enjoy the story in like, you know, three sentences and then we're room into the actual narrative. You know, another way around that, if you want to be all fancy schmancy, and maybe slightly more oblique, maybe you think the reader's going to enjoy that, is to drop some found text in, you know, a newspaper article, archive material, a, a, a secret missive sent from one minister to another, a bit of folk song, anything like that, a little quote, you can open that way. But if you don't want to do that, then when the story opens with your protagonist in the narrative present, you've got to give them something to do, a problem, something to care about. You can't just make them a sort of unpaid camera operator pointing their eyeballs at things of interest while, you know, muttering in a vaguely noirish way in their head about this goddamn dirty city. At the moment, Reiner is just reminiscing about stuff that happened. It's not even happening now, right? She's not even watching it now. We've missed that. We've tuned in too late. This part of the story has already happened. She's just on the roof, on a lunch break or whatever's whatever the hell's going on, looking at a point where something ha- happened at one point, but not now. It, it, it's just like... It's just like her turning up in a cornfield and, uh, and, 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 and saying she looked at the field. Long ago, the Battle of Crecy happened here. It's not happening now. But it was pretty dramatic at the time. She's bored now. She doesn't care. (laughs) But my goodness, you should have been there when a story was happening. It's not happening now, though, just to be clear. And just to be clear, the protagonist is indifferent. He finds it dull. Um, You know, I just think we need an immediate problem happening in the moment. That's going to be infinitely more interesting to the reader something that the protagonist cares about even if like in terms of the world this is a negligible problem if it matters to the protagonist it will feel important to us you know it needn't be you know like blazing arrows pinging off the parapet or winged hounds pursuing her or whatever she might just be absolutely busting for a piss or trying to nick somebody's purse or completely stuck as to what to get someone for a birthday present those aren't facetious examples, by the way. They're, I think they're all ones that can be important and interesting. But if you're going to open with her in the scene, 
rather than a prologue that explains your world. You've got to lean into what fiction does well, which is conflict. It, it's a dialectic. You need opposing forces or at least some form of target or goal. You know, some people will tell you, oh, that's, you know, a very restrictive view of fiction to say it's all got to be about conflict. But I think they always imagine that conflict means throwing a punch or argument and not someone yearning for something. It's, it's just about another way of thinking about conflict is growth and the potential for growth and obstacles and wrinkles and barriers and stuff like that, you know. And I, I've never read a successful piece of fiction that doesn't have some of those things in it. I like the bit about the sacrificial pyre. I like that bit of world flavour and this idea that, it, that, that, that the pyre, although clearly like a huge flame, was just a symbolic representation of a real one that exists somewhere. Some kind of hint of magic there. I don't know whether that's true, but like that it's it's not the real thing. And ooh, what does that mean? I was just kind of intrigued. I like that. I, I like how we eventually start to get the sense that Rhinem actually cares about something here that maybe some of her indifference is effect affected or is somehow a coping strategy there was a moment a twinge that's a good line like i like that i'm presuming it refers to rainet and not like a cultural moment uh i could be wrong but that's how i interpreted it uh moon cycles is not a good invented term for months or indeed any passage of time whatever moon cycles means I don't know, you know, what relationship moons have to time on this world, but like it could not be more generic if you tried. And frankly, moon cycles evokes less the passing of time and more space bikes and menstruation. It doesn't add to the law. It's super bland fantasy fare. The number of times like stock fantasy has said it had been many moons since. So you're not even you're kind of using that by adding the word cycles on the front. It, it doesn't. I think anyone living in this world is not going to use the term cycles, moon cycles. They're going to abbreviate it to moons. Everyone understands what that means. It just, uh, it just sounds naff. It's 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 like it had been five blurgs since who? No, no, don't do that. Like it, that's what that's what people who don't like fantasy say that fantasy is right to take the piss out of it and we've got to kind of hold our hands up and say guilty i once tried to write a book a fantasy novel no less where i reinvented all the words for miles and hours years minutes didn't add anything to the story materially it just made it harder to read it was just stupid <laughs> it was crap it was so bad and and why I don't know, because I thought that was what fantasy was. No, it's not. It's not at all. That's just farting. That's just cut and pasting, right? Don't do not do this. I, I realise there may be some kind of like mechanic behind this. Maybe the moon sort of sweeps round once every three months and it causes great tidal shifts or, or the moon has some kind of magic to it. Or I don't know what that means. Maybe there's some kind of folk belief. I, I I get that this could mean all sorts of things, but it just feels like really boopy, by which I mean on the nose. Uh, and it just, just... It just makes me go, if you're not going to make the effort to give me something that I haven't seen dozens of times before, then am I just going to read this and it's going to be the same old thing? That's... You know, and I'm... I know that sounds like hypercritical, but that's just what I'm getting out of this. 
The bone-shattering thwack is a lovely graphic, vivid line, grotesquely onomatopoeic, actually. You know, the bone-shattering thwack. Great. Lovely. It was a, a massive relief, actually, when you finally made it clear that there are people present in the scene below, because until the third paragraph, the nature of the city now isn't at all clear. You know, I was unmoored in time. But the fact that your protagonist... Right, has to stifle a yawn. I mean, come on. If she's bored, so bored in fact that she has to fantasise about her own grisly death just to feel something, what do you expect us, the readers, to feel? This is a classic example of a signal from Fred. That lovely phenomenon where one of your characters channels your subconscious to point out flaws in the story. This doesn't make any sense, says a character, echoing your intuitive understanding that your story doesn't make any sense. Here, Reiner is one step from playing Russian roulette just to inject some drama into what otherwise appears to be a tourist trip around sites of historical interest. And she is telling you directly, start the flipping story. You know, I get it. You're trying to make her bleak nihilism part of the conflict she faces, like wrestling against her protective indifference to actually fight back or rise up or take responsibility. So this is supposed to be a starting point that you're going to then contrast. You know, you're going to juxtapose it against circumstances that later force her into inaction. She's going to have to deal with the fact that she really does care. The problem is that at this point, the real struggle against indifference is mine because this is really boring and I don't care. Like, it's just not a compelling offer to give us this indifferent burnout in a scene where nothing's happening and expect us to think, oh, I wonder what happens next. Will she overcome her lassitude and ennui? I don't fucking care. Like, and I know it's like really easy. It's like the wor- it's like the laziest criticism of any story in the world to go why should i care well you, you know there's got to be some level of goodwill on, on the part of the reader if you don't come to something with some level of like okay i'm going to invest in this a bit then there is no book in the world that you can't just dismiss so n- not enough on its own i accept but look i just don't think a character not facing any conflict whatsoever who is bored by what you're putting in front of her is a good hook and I don't think that's a contentious thing to suggest look I think that standard of writing and I'm not just saying this um to like mollify you I I I, I never say it if I don't believe it and I think I actually say it in relatively few examples that I've read out I think the standard of writing in the good bits is actually kind of super great like my, my overall if I just switch off an analytical mode here and go with my gut, and that this is kind of less valid and more subjective, but like my, my impression was that like if I were to read on, I'd imagine that there'd be kind of like a reasonable standard of writing throughout this. Like it's it it it's it's clear to me. I genuinely think um, there's a sense of strong storytelling rhythms and character, and I get the sense that you care about it. So I wasn't like reading this going, "This is shite." I didn't think that at all. I was like, I kind of like. Feel there's like a kind of guts to this that is I, I i can kind of like believe that um uh you know with the necessary changes what's the latin for that mutis mutandi um i can imagine this being edited up if there's a whole story behind it into something that's kind of like publishable right like i can imagine i just kind of feel that like within the genre it's working in and stuff it's 
it's hitting a lot of basic things right so it's not unsalvageable for me to like switch that around to the most negative way i can describe saying i think this has potential i do think it does but you know because that's what nitpicking has to be right like i i but let me make it clear you know i think it shows promise but and that's precisely why i think it's worth working on you know and and not holding it to the lowest possible standards of well i you know i guess someone can i did kind of understand that like let's make it let's poly let's make it really frigging good let's make it sing let's make every sentence like like a like a crystal dagger you know you want it to just cut you want it to just be sharp and 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 it and it to punch and for the reader to go ooh and this to like feel from the word go that a story has begun page one on that roof something is bugging or threatening or twisting the guts of Reiner. that's what i want i want her to care i want her to be in shit or i want her to be conflicted i want her to face something i don't want her to be bored out of her cranium right like you know, and I and I get this right because this is a this is a pants opening at the moment, right? Uh, you know, let's let's be completely clear. The prose is competent, but the scene is just wrong, and it's it's missing the key ingredient, conflict. And this is not unusual. This is the classic first draft of a novel. This is what all my opening scenes look like, right? You, I, you know, I just. When I'm trying to write a fantasy novel, I just fart out a character concept and as much of the world as I can as early as I can I start describing the world right and I'm just writing myself into the story I suspect this is what happened here you know you're just writing yourself into the world you have some stuff in your head and you want to just unpack your suitcase as quickly as possible but it's just an awful way to start a book you know with this character who's just bored of it all in a place where time in a place in time when naff all is happening so either you commit to a proper expositionary prologue or alternatively throw us into the action and give us drama a conflict something important happening in the here and now you know we can pick up on the history later what we need desperately here is precisely what reiner needs a reason to care look uh thank you for submitting ah matthew i hope that was helpful it's only ever on this uh podcast my informed sincere but inevitably subjective and fallible opinion if you and i'm addressing all listeners now if you have any comments disagreements or suggestions or indeed praise or just information about how you're getting on i love hearing um from people about how your writing's doing what you think of the podcast just hearing how you're getting on um please do drop me a line via my website timclapert.co.uk just click on the contact me button there'll be a link to that in the show notes and if you'd like to submit something for a future episode you can click on that button and just send me the first 250 words of your novel or story plus the title and your name nothing else thank you drop it into the body of an email i don't want apologies about why you don't think it's very good like polish it make it as good as you can Edit it up to a high shine, but don't give me any context. I'm not interested. I don't mean I'm not interested in a sense of dismissive sense. I just like that's not it's not helpful to me to be giving you feedback based on you explaining it away because a reader doesn't have that. An editor doesn't have that. Just give me the first 250 words. Let's see if it can 
let's see how well it performs based on those alone. I don't want to know about you. I don't want to know about your publishing history. I frankly don't care because I just want to make your first page as good as possible. But make sure you've made it as, for, as good as possible. Show it to other people. Get feedback. Write the whole novel if you can. I want this to be you, the best of your best writing because then if I can attack the best... I just say attack. That sounds too aggressive. If I can engage with you writing at your absolute peak, then we can try and push you past your peak and that would be pretty flipping exciting wouldn't it if you like today's episode and you want to become a super fan and show your adoration for the show and me go to my coffee page that's uh, ko-fi.com forward slash tim clare again link in the show notes and drop me a few beans donations from listeners is how i'm able to keep going not emotionally i like i will do that anyway um but they certainly allow me to do this show which i have to take time away from writing to make i enjoy doing it <laughs> but i also need to pay the mortgage so thank you very much to everyone who supports the show um it really 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 helps if you're able to leave um reviews on places like itunes if you're able to subscribe to the show then you're more likely to get it because my updating schedule as i've said before is erratic and if you're just able to share this with people uh, other writers people on social media anyone you know who writes if you like it recommend it i'm always kind of like surprised and slightly dismayed at how few people have heard of the show who then start listening to it and go oh i really like this why didn't anyone tell me this exists over three solid days back to back of interviews with authors from all around the world multiple uh in uh free courses to get you back into writing and then all these episodes where we look at people's first pages where i talk about different aspects of writing there are people out there who've never heard that this uh podcast exists and you know if i do say so myself it's something that could make their writing life a load better so please do share it i think it's a it really helps me and you could be helping a bunch of people out as well because as much as you know i'm as fallible and uh imperfect as the next person you know we've built up some reasonable writing resources on this show and i don't think it's immodest to say so right i'm done i hope you're super good look that is time for everything today that's everything we've got phew i'm sweating so i'm going to open a window take care stay safe if you get stuck remember set a timer and just do 10 minutes of free writing and whatever else happens i hope you have a wonderful week of writing wonderful week.